This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Kent Smetter is a Wharton professor of business economics and public policy, is joining us today to talk about his new book, The Economics of Tax Policy, which he has co-written with Alan Auerbach, who is a professor of economics and law at Berkeley and also former head of the economics department here at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for coming in to chat with us about this wonderful new book. Good to be here. Um, There's a lot of interesting things in it, uh, things that will surprise people, I think, uh, who may think they know something about taxes and and will, will learn some interesting things. Uh, Why don't you give us a a brief overview of what the book is about? I should say it's a compilation of papers by uh, a number of authors, and uh, you and your co-author wrote the first chapter, which is kind of an introduction and a review of what people will find between the covers. Right. So the idea was very simple. Um, We haven't had a major tax reform um, since the 1986 Tax Reform Act. And so at the time, everybody kind of agrees that something needs to be done. And, and so what we simply did is we went to the, about a dozen of the leading authorities in tax uh, 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 analysis, everything from looking at the corporate tax rate to environmental taxes to lots of other things that taxes interact with. And we got the leading experts in each area and said, okay, what do we really know about the impact of taxes on things like the environment or taxes on how businesses operate or taxes on how people save or not save for retirement? And um, they... uh, each author surveyed the literature. They really brought um, uh, uh, for their paper uh, the attention to what, really, what, what is it that we really know about that particular area of taxation. Uh, before we started, you, you made an interesting comment that that Tax Reform Act of 1986, before that time, uh, if we want to talk about individual yeah. tax rate, rates for a minute, Individual tax rates were very high, very high, but there were so many loopholes that the effective rate that, that those well-off people paid was was really low. You, you said that that 86 law closed most of those loopholes. Right. So what we're saying here is that 30, 31 years later, a lot has changed and, and needs to be looked at. And that's kind of seems to be the thrust of the book. Yeah, yeah. lots of has changed. First, some of those loopholes have kind of come back. But um, at the same time, 86 was a, f- a phenomenal uh, reform, bipartisan reform, really the last big bipartisan major uh, policy change in Washington. But the, I think the biggest thing that's changed is really globalization. And in particular, before 1986, people really didn't talk about locating income offshores. We didn't have the $3 trillion of earnings um, located offshores um, because of the corporate tax rate being so high. And so um, globalization has really changed kind of the algebra. Our U.S. tax system is not um, it, it's still very much old school. It thinks of the United States mm-hmm. as the economy rather than it being uh, a large open economy in, in a global system. Uh, we also talked ahead of time, which I thought was interesting, about this idea that on page two of your book, yeah. right, you jump right into what are the corporate tax rates uh, for various countries. And the United States is right at the top at 35%. It is, yeah. And, um, even higher than France. Even higher than <laughs> France. Um, and that's on a list of, I don't know, 50 or more countries. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that we often hear, for example, there was a study 
or, or something in the news a couple years ago that the 15 top Fortune 500 companies didn't yeah. pay anything in taxes. Right. Or we will hear 35%, that's the official rate, but what companies actually pay the real effective rate it's, is much less. Right. And you have an explanation for that, that it's a kind of uh, – the one reason it's less is people are putting their money overseas. Yeah. So that's a really – we have to figure out the cause and the effect. In other words, it's not right to say, well, 35 percent is kind of a phony number because the effective rate, what people are actually paying is you know, maybe half of that amount depending on what study you look at. The way to really think about it is that's a very high statutory rate, especially in today's world. And so what happens is companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, and um, Oracle, and others uh, are able to figure out how to shift a lot of their earnings offshore to avoid that very high corporate tax rate. And so it's that corporate tax rate that, that's very high and the fact that we don't have this uh, uh, the border adjustment that's currently debate, being debated in Washington because we don't currently have that. There's, there's all this distortion to, in fact, locate um, uh, income o- offshore. Now, in some cases, uh, we also have uh, rewards for investing in, in, in new capital. So that's sometimes called bonus depreciation or expensing. That's already part of the existing corporate tax rate. Uh, the House GOP plan and the Trump plan would, in fact, uh, increase that even more. So that's one reason why the, the effective rate is, is a little bit lower. But the cases that you're talking about of large companies not paying anything, that's mainly right. income shifting. So, uh, so, so this is interesting because um, that's you're, you're discussing the concept of like lowering the rate in order to, uh, I guess, encourage investment and so right. forth. And uh, so, but. But in, I think the second chapter, right off, you start out talking about how tax cuts in recent years, and you can tell me whether we're talking about individual tax cuts or corporate sure. or both, have, even though they, there have been cuts to encourage investment right, right. or savings, they've actually not worked for it. They haven't done that very much, have they? Yeah. I mean, there's, that's probably the most controversial chapter uh, written by uh, one more liberal economist, Bill mm-hmm. Brookings, and one more conservative, Andrew Samick at Dartmouth. And what they showed is that a lot of tax cuts in the past um, don't seem like they have led to stimulus. And one reason why, which they uh, highlight— So just was that corporate or individual or both? It's both. I mean, they they look across a series of them. So a lot of of tax cuts were— they uh, both, the individual and the corporate, were, were reduced at the same time. Right. Um, and one of the reasons, uh, uh, the main reason that they find is that the um, tax cuts are often not funded. And so it, it, the government loses a bunch of revenue. It has to float out a bunch of debt. And that increase <clears throat> in debt is actually has the opposite effect. It, it becomes it, – it competes with uh, private capital for international capital flows and household saving. And so it works in the opposite direction to offset a lot of the gains. And uh, the, the few cases that we have of kind of a revenue-neutral change, mm-hmm. those seem to be working in a positive direction, mm-hmm. especially over time. But when it's just a tax cut with um, – and it's you haven't cut government spend at the same time, so you're just increasing the debt, right. um, that's going to be a lot less effective. All right. So a, another interesting point, I think, was that on, on tax enforcement, uh, and this is – if I understand it correctly, this these are taxes that people should be paying, but right. they're skirting the law in some right. way, right. and and they're not paying them. So the government's right. out that money. These are not legal deductions. These are illegal deductions, right. you, you could call right. it. 
Uh, an enormous amount of money. Yeah. Uh, an yeah. enormous amount of money. This isn't closing loopholes. This is just money that uh, maybe if the IRS knew how to find people, they'd, they'd be able to collect it's it. It's hundreds of billions of dollars a year in revenue that's uh-huh. lost. So what, what we have here is that uh, tax evasion uh, lost three hundred, well, $450 billion to yeah. noncompliance. This is 2006 numbers. Uh, and $385 billion after they went after a few people and got some of that money back. But what's interesting is it's a big number. It sounds big. But to know just how big it is, uh, one of the um, examples that's given is that if that money were fully captured, it could finance half of all Social Security benefits paid in 2015. Right. So this is a lot of money left on the table by yeah. the government. What do we do about yeah, that's that? Yeah, that's a commentary that's a lot of money that's lost. And it's also the fact that our Social Security program is very big and yes. it's paying out a lot right. of money. Um, it's one reason why it's also in, in trouble. Um, but in any case, um, most of the tax evasion, I mean, it's not just people just not filing their tax returns. Yeah, you have some of those, but IRS can usually figure those mm-hmm. those ones out and hunt you down. Um, and it's not like the small things that people are doing that, the, quite frankly, the IRS threatens about, but they don't waste their time on, for example. Like your you, home office deduction. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the home office deduction. Do you really have a separate door to your office or you, you take out? HELOC loan, deduct the interest. You're really only supposed to do that if you do home improvements with the money. A lot of people don't. I mean, the big one is sole proprietors. That's the one where you, the electrician, the plumber, um, the small shopkeeper, you go out to a restaurant and they give you a deduction if you pay cash. Um, Those are the the main sources of of Mm -hmm. losses. And the reason why is that you don't have the tracking um, that you would normally have, like you and I in our wages, you know, pen cents you know, form to the government. So if right. you and I don't file, they're going right. to catch us pretty quickly. Um, you just don't have that counterpart, that tracking of information. And so a lot of it is, uh, uh, people have joked in the past, it seems for sole proprietors, which is a very large part of the economy, uh, you know, tax is um, almost a voluntary exercise. And that's why IRS does a lot of spot checking, mm-hmm. a lot of randomization on, when it comes to looking at sole proprietors. It's almost, you could call it a black market, couldn't you? Almost. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly the case that the IRS has very limited resources, and they're going to really try to concentrate on the things that really matter. Yeah, they're going to look at your Schedule C and E um, deductions and all that type of yeah. stuff, but they're really um, pounding is the the sole proprietor. Well, it's sort of interesting when when. Sometimes when people talk about other people's businesses and you might hear a comment like, it's a cash business, and everyone sort of nods knowing what that yes, means. Yes, that, right? that means. That's right. That's what it means. Yeah. I mean, it, in the United States, is not the only country. If sure. you look at China and India, huge problems with small businesses. Mm-hmm. So those are the rules that are getting skirted. Then there's the legal deductions, yeah. which is interesting because the, the, the term of art for economists – is tax expenditures, which is very confusing. I'll let you explain that. But these are the deductions that are that are out there, um, and these might be the things that have changed since 86 more than anything else. Uh, uh, so why don't you tell us, first of all, why we're calling them tax expenditures when we really – most people think of these things as tax deductions. Right, and then right. we can talk about how important they are. Yeah, you, like you said, it's a term of art. It's, it's kind of – you have to almost be an economist to appreciate. The idea is that this is tax revenue that we could have – 
brought in, but right. we're spending it. We're expending it okay. by not uh, by essentially giving you a break. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, economists have noticed for a long time a tax expenditure. For, uh, give you some examples, like your home interest deduction. Mm-hmm. That's a very big one. You get to deduct your interest payments on your home. That reduces your tax bill. That's a tax expenditure. Charitable giving, another one. Um, state and local taxes that you get to deduct at the federal level, um, yet another. And so uh, if, in fact, you didn't have these tax expenditures, these reductions, um, you would, in fact, um, have more tax revenue. But economists have known for a, a long time that if you actually just collected the money, then you had a separate program that said, we're going to subsidize your interest payments. Right. That's mathematically the same thing. Yes. The difference is that the f- tax expenditure approach looks more like we're giving you a tax break that's Republican-friendly. Right. The, uh, the the more explicit approach of we'll collect the taxes, then give it back to you as a subsidy program. That check you get back from <laughs> yeah, the IRS. So. That, that looks more like a Democrat-type program. Okay. <laughs> and so this is a way of kind of okay. expanding the government in, um, in a way that is, was more politically palatable for those on the right. So we all know when it comes to uh, the, the, the mortgage interest deduction right. and charitable giving, I mean, these are things that I think the public be really loath to give up and, and would yeah. be really, you know, a lot of people would lose their seat in Congress if they, if they oh, voted yeah. for these things. So what about the things that aren't quite that controversial? Is there a big number to be saved in other things? Those are the two big ones we always hear about. They're really tough. Probably never will happen. Who knows? Right. But so the big three is the uh, is the mortgage interest deduction. Right. It's the health expenditure. You get uh, through Penn, you get your health care, um, and you pay some of that uh, um, for your health care. You get to pay for that through pre-tax dollars. So that's number two. And the third one is the state and local deduction. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is those three, the big three, mm-hmm. is um, most of the tax expenditures. A charitable giving is kind of a distance number four and okay. lots of the other ones as well. And so it, one way you can try to deal with some of those big, big ones is to do it more subtly. And in particular, what you do is with something like the mortgage interest deduction, you put a cap and say, okay, um, you can only do this in a house that's worth, you know, a million dollars, but we're not going to index for that for inflation over time. So your current house is probably okay, Mm -hmm. but as uh, inflation creeps up over time, the real value of that million dollars Mm -hmm. is becoming smaller and smaller. We've we've actually done that in the past with some Medicare um, tax expenditures. Just put a number on that. Those those deductions we're talking about in 2016 yeah. uh, were somewhere between two, 282 and 366 billion. So they're obviously big numbers. Big money, yeah. Put put that and the evasion together. Now you can fully fund Social Security almost. Okay. <laughs> um, okay so we've talked a little bit about the. Uh, I, I guess we've talked about the corporate taxes and and, and what's really involved there. Yeah. Um, estate taxes, this is an interesting one because you know, we've all heard about the death tax. and Yeah, so it, it's not based on income. It's based on assets that are passed um, to one's heirs. And so roughly speaking, a married couple in their U- current U.S. tax law can pass close, a little shy of $11 million um, to their heirs or anybody else without it being a taxable event. And on top of that, what's amazing about the current law is that suppose Suppose that you've been holding GM stock for you know 50 years. When you bought that, that might have been you know a dollar a share. Right. It's worth a lot more than that. If 
you were to sell that before you died, you'd pay a large capital gains right. all the way from the current price all back to a dollar. What happens if you bequeath that money, it gets valued at the current market price. However, your heirs inherit that stock um, at the current market price. All that capital gains is wiped out. And so with the Trump idea, which has actually a fair amount of economists backing to it, is to basically just get rid of the estate tax. But when you die, the capital gains is owed. At that point, um, and so um, you can, depending on how you configure it, um, you can actually raise as much money as the current estate tax. You could actually raise more money. You could raise a little less money. It just depends on uh, if you're willing to mm-hmm. how 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 aggressive you're willing to, to mm-hmm. go with it. So, for example, you probably would not do that for everybody. You'd still have some exemption uh, there. Would that cause uh, those affluent families to simply? Move move their money into something that doesn't have capital gains. I don't know bonds or something like that. It could, but that, yeah. that's fine too. I mean, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to get the same kind of longer term, you know, reward on their on their investment. And um, it, but it, the, the advantage of it is that we think that the current system with what's called this the step up basis of death, where the basis that the cost basis gets reset at death, um, that potentially has some distortions associated with it. Mm-hmm. And so just uh, the, the fact that the, the estate tax only hits about 5,000 people, right. um, you know, just getting rid of that, it's not a huge money loser. And you could probably just make it up and even more just by saying, you know, when people die, um, there's the built-in capital gains there. Pay the taxes on that, but then you can leave the rest tax-free. Right, and, the, and capital gains, what is the ta- capital gains rate right now? Yeah, it's, it depends. I mean, right. uh, what income, uh, if it's long or short-term uh, gains, right. but it, it's, it's going to be less than half of what the estate yeah. tax is. Okay. So another interesting uh, point made in the book, this is in Chapter 11 now, the trade-offs between personal tax rates and say a consumption tax. You talk yeah. about the possibility, the authors talk about, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, the possibility of a VAT and how that could end up being more fair and so forth. Could you discuss that that idea? Yeah. So it's not clear if it's more fair or not, but the uh, a lot of people who like the idea of a consumption tax um, are proponents of it because they say, well, right now we have an income tax system that really discourages saving and capital investment. Household saving is very low in the United States. It's literally about one-tenth of the level that we see in Japan. And so how do we encourage more saving, more productive capital, and so forth? And the consumption tax idea is um, uh, usually the kind of the favored idea. Um, but th- what people don't realize is that you can actually go to a consumption tax without uh, getting rid of the regular income tax simply by rewarding investments made at the margin, and that is this idea of full expensing. When a, if a company can f- uh, com- immediately write off a new piece of capital equipment in that year, um, that is going to ultimately translate to higher returns to ho- the households, and you can show that that is the same thing as not taxing saving at the margin, but still having a progressive. Um, income tax. And so the, the issue with a consumption tax, something like a simple national sales tax or a VAT, is how do you, how do you maintain progressivity mm-hmm. of the tax system? Now, here's the ironic twist. In the old days, it used to be 
conservatives love the idea of the consumption tax, the VAT, and so forth. Flat tax um, and uh, very simple. It didn't hit household saving. Um, today, it's, it's kind of switched. And the reason why it's conservatives, people like Milton Friedman, um, some years ago noticed that countries that added the VAT actually weren't replacing their income tax. They were just adding on top of their income tax, okay. countries mm-hmm. like France and so forth. Right. And so he felt, practically speaking, what would happen is that we wouldn't really replace the income tax with a VAT. It would just be an, an additional mm-hmm. um, add-on. And so, and, and basically, I think he won the argument because that's why a lot of liberals today like the idea mm-hmm. of a VAT. It's they don't really think it's going to replace an income tax. It's going to be an additional revenue um, to, to save things that are greatly underfunded right now, like Social Security. Medicare and Medicaid. So they want to maintain some kind of a lever to have progressivity in in, in the so, tax code. So essentially, I guess. what the liberals are uh, side is basically doing is that they're basically uh, saying there's a compromise here. Let's keep the current progressive income tax. We need to get more revenue. We don't want to replace that whole thing with a flat income tax that reduces progressivity. I'm willing to, if it we're talking about additional revenue, I'm willing to get that through a mm-hmm. flat right. tax, um, provided that's truly additional. The, the interesting thing that you talked about was the business-friendly side of this, which was, I guess, really, it's kind of doing away with depreciation, or you can depreciate in one year instead of dragging it out over 10 years. That's right. And so a company's going to be much more likely to buy a new piece of equipment or build a new wing on their factory, something like that. That's is right. That, that's the idea? That, that is the idea. And both the House GOP plan as well as the Trump tax plan mm-hmm. had that element in there. Um, the uh, the Trump plan on top of it also reduces the corporate income tax rate. And when you do both together, what's actually happening is that um, when you go to full expensing, you're already not taxing new investment at the margin, so that when you lower the corporate tax rate on top of all that, mm-hmm. you actually are now only rewarding uh, capital that's already been invested uh, in, that capital that's already been installed. And so right. that's not going to be as stimulating. Um, so if you're already doing full expensing, you're not going to get much stimulus by reducing the corporate tax rate on top of it. It's really um, you reduce the corporate tax rate and don't go to full expensing or you go to full expensing and, and, and maybe change the corporate tax rate just to deal with some of the international issues. So that was a problem with some past corporate tax changes, right? They, they were hoping to provide stimulus, but it, it turned out that it didn't really – Work out that. That's well. right. It mainly rewarded uh, existing investments, and mm-hmm. um, and it also was greatly underfunded. Mm-hmm. So the one reason why, if you go to the Penn Wharton budget model website, you see, you can simulate and look at how the Trump plan works in um, as well as the House GOP plan. And you'll notice the Trump plan, you know, it has an initial boost, but then over time, the economy actually shrinks relative to the current law. And it's simply because just such a massive amount of debt is built up that it eventually um, uh, reduces the size of the economy. I'm glad you brought up the model. Tell us about that, because you started out with a model that was that was looking at the, the costs uh, uh, and benefits of immigration, also Social Security. And then not long ago, you introduced one that looked at taxes, which has to be a lot more complicated. It is. So uh, uh, before the election, we released uh, looking at uh, uh, the, the presidential candidates, uh, uh, Clinton, Trump, and House GOP, uh, their three plans. And you can go on to the Penn Wharton budget model and actually play with those plans and change different assumptions and, and see what the impact on the economy and lots of different economic variables 
are, um, both from a static basis of the type that you would see normally in Washington or, or from a dynamic basis that includes economic feedback effects. And really the big takeaway from there was the Clinton plan really didn't do much. I mean, so it wasn't super positive or negative. Um, the uh, House GOP plan was kind of the one that performed basically the best. Um, and then the, the Trump plan performed basically the worst. Um, and essentially, even though the Trump plan did okay in the short run, it's just so underfunded because uh, they're not cutting government spend at the same time that it basically um, just leads to a, a substantial mm -hmm. amount of debt. Okay, so last word on your book. What what else should people know about it? That uh, yeah, well, it covers is, a lot more areas than yeah. even what we talked about, including another thing that's changed in the last thirty years is our concern about CO two. Mm -hmm. So, what is the right? Um, or what does the uh, uh, economics literature that's looked at things like carbon taxes and tradable pollution rights and things like that, what has that been saying? Um, that's something that, you know, 30 years ago we weren't so concerned about. But since then there's been lots of um, literature published on that. And so we have a great um, chapter there by Robertson Williams at University of Maryland that dissects that literature in great detail and explains it. And so we have – Lots of other areas as well that, that we're looking at. Including income inequality is one of the things you look at? Yeah. So, so normally income inequality is part of the discussion about uh, we have a chapter down just simply labeled fundamental tax reform. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, part of fundamental tax reform is, yes, if you want to just be – if you wanted to get the GDP as you know, big as possible, then you could probably go with a flat tax, you know, not taxing any sort of saving, you know, just try to be as pro-stimulus as possible. But, of course, that is going to um, not be as progressive as the current taxes. And the current taxes in the United States, a lot of people don't realize, is that you know, they, there's this belief that the middle class pays most of the taxes. It's actually not true. For the most part, the rich pay most of the, uh, the non-payroll taxes, the federal income taxes. The top 10 percent of the population uh, pays about 60 percent of the of the taxes. The top 1% pays 25% of the taxes. And so we're, it's a very progressive system that we're starting out with. And so when you have that progressive system and you're trying to do reform, um, you're trying to do something that's stimulating, at the same time maintain progressivity, mm -hmm. it's a hard nut to crack. Mm -hmm. But there are some answers here, I think. There are answers, okay. yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's, but it's, uh, it's a fool's game to say there's no losers. I mean, right. as pointed out yeah. uh, um, in the last uh, – what economists kind of have known in the 1986 Reform Act, that was kind of the last big bipartisan mm -hmm. – belief it was going to be pro-growth as well as re uh, revenue neutral, as well as distributionally kind of neutral. Eh, it turns out they fudged the numbers on the distributional <laughs> side a little bit. Um, uh, so there was a little bit of fudging that went on okay. in terms of selling that. Well, thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. My pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.